You're listening to Theology for the Rest of Us. You've got tough questions. We'll try to give you easy answers. Now, here's your host, Kenny Ortiz. Hello and welcome back to Theology for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Kenny Ortiz, coming at you from the beautiful metropolis of Orlando, Florida. That's right, in the backyard of Mickey Mouse himself. Thank you so much for taking a few minutes out to listen to this episode of the podcast. Super stoked to dive in. This is episode 138, and I'm going to be talking about the concept of covenant theology um, this is actually going to be a part of a two-part series. In this episode, I'm going to cover covenant theology. In the next episode, episode 139, uh, I'm going to cover uh, dispensationalism. And so uh, covenant theology and dispensationalism are really sort of the, the two overarching or the two kind of most popular frameworks for interpreting uh, much of the scripture. And, and I think it's important for us to, to understand the two of them and the differences. Uh, I've been asked about this topic uh, multiple times by multiple different listeners uh, over the course of the last several months. And I keep telling people, don't worry, we're going to get to it. We're going to get to it. Uh, the time has come. We have finally uh, come to the topic of uh, covenant theology uh, versus dispensationalism. And in this episode, we're going to focus on covenant theology. But before we do that, I want to give a quick reminder to everyone about the importance of being subscribed to the podcast. And I know, I know that many of you listening to this are no doubt already subscribed. Thank you. Uh, for the rest of you, I want to let you know that the only way to guarantee that you never miss a single episode of the podcast is to be subs- uh, subscribed. Because whenever you're subscribed, uh, as soon as an episode goes live, it gets deli- delivered directly to your device. So I want to encourage you head over to whatever podcast app you're familiar with hit that subscribe button. If you don't know how to do that, the best way is just head over to our website. When you're on the website, you'll see several buttons. Just click whichever one applies to you, depending on what device you're using or or what uh, or what platform you're on, and that'll take you. One of those buttons will take you over to uh, to a particular page where you can uh, subscribe. Our website is theologyfortherestofus.com. I want to encourage you to check that out. Uh, one other piece of business before we dive into the content for this episode is I actually have another podcast I've been uh, promoting and talking to you guys about. Would love for you to check out. It's called the Student Ministry Podcast. So if you're in student ministry or youth ministry, or if you know someone that is, I want to highly encourage you to check out that podcast. Uh, that's designed to be an encouragement and source of inspiration for you, as well as a source for tools and resources to help you as a youth worker or youth minister. And so I want to highly encourage you to check that out or tell your friends about that. Uh, the website for that is studentministrypodcast.com. Check that out. Thank you in advance. All right, let's dive into the content for this episode. What is covenant theology? Uh, in essence, covenant theology simply states that we view the scripture through the lens of two overarching covenants. In essence, that when we are looking at the Bible, studying the Bible, interpreting the Bible, that we always look at the Bible through two covenants. Now, if you don't take on covenant theology, you will almost always end up taking on a another framework through to, to view the scripture, uh, which is called dispensationalism. And, and there are other frameworks other than these two, but pretty much within... Uh, Protestantism and and kind of modern evangelicalism, these are the two main views, covenant theology and dispensationalism. Sometimes people will ask, well, do I have to pick one or the other? Can I just look at the Bible and just interpret it as is? Well, the reality is this, you're going to interpret the Bible with some subjective realities at play. Like you are always going to have lens by which you view the world. To say that you're just going to look at the Bible and say, well, I'm going to interpret it just by what I see 
is to ignore the fact that you yourself will be subjective. You're going to have some personal biases. You're going to come into play. All of us do. I have that. You have that. We all have that. And so we have to understand our biases. You're not wrong for having a bias, but we all are going to have a bias. And so it's important to identify our bias. Secondly, the other thing that's really important to remember is, is that as you get to know these two frameworks better, you're going to realize that you are, you are almost always going to end up picking one of these two by accident. Like You may not intentionally choose one or the other, but by default, you're going to end up picking one or the other. It's also very important to note that within modern uh, North American Protestantism and evangelicalism, that dispensationalism has been very popular. Um, dispensationalism as a framework was really articulated and started to grow in popularity in the mid-1800s and then really exploded in popularity in the early 1900s and really has been the most prominent and most popular framework uh, in the United States, in North America, you know, from you know, pretty much from the from the early 1900s all the way up till today. Um, covenant theology before that was much more popular, and it has seen a little bit of a resurgence since the 1980s, 1990s, but there's no doubt that dispensationalism is still more popular today. Uh, covenant theology has remained popular within certain circles, so within, uh, re- within Presbyterian circles, within certain Reformed Baptist circles, and within a few other circles, uh, covenant theology remained the most prominent view. But overall speaking, in North American and Western Christianity, dispensationalism has no doubt uh, been the most popular view. And, and you're listening, if you're listening to this, you don't know what you are. Uh, if you grew up in the American church, you, you might be dispensationalist and you might not even realize it. Let me give you a couple quick examples. Um, if you believe in the rapture of a church, you believe that one day all Christians are going to disappear before the end of the world. Um, that That is a dispensational view. The, the only reason you believe that is because you saw some things in Scripture through the lens of a dispensational perspective. But if you had the the covenant theology view kind of as the lens by which you view the Scripture, you would end up interpreting those Scriptures uh, very differently. Another example would be what you believe about Israel. You know, if you happen to believe a distinction between Israel and the church, that, that Israel is God's you know, unique, special people, if you believe that, then you have a dispensational perspective. Um, covenant theology doesn't believe that Israel and the church are separate, but that Israel were God's people, and then it was expanded, and that Gentiles were added to that. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unpack that quite a bit more later in this episode. So again, the distinction between Israel and the church is a very dispensational view. And then there are a variety of others that, I mean, I, there's many others, I don't want to spend a bunch of time, but, but the, it's, it's sufficient to say, that, uh, that we all have a bias in the scripture as we approach the scripture, and those biases are going to impact how we interpret the scripture. And so it is appropriate and responsible to study both frameworks and to see which one is most consistent and try to u- use that framework to help guide us so that our, bi- our own personal biases and our own personal subjectivity doesn't come into play as much when we're interpreting the scriptures. All right, let's dive into the nuts and bolts of covenant theology itself. Let me start off by defining the word covenant. I'm going to try to give you the simplest answer. A covenant is a very serious contract or a very sacred agreement between two parties. So when we talk about covenant theology, uh, we're talking about the idea or the concept that God deals with his people through a series of covenants or a set of contracts and agreements that he has set up with his people. 
Now, the term covenant theology does not appear in the Bible anywhere explicitly, okay? Sometimes people who disagree with covenant theology say, well, that's not even in the Bible. True, but there's lots of things that we completely embrace as truth that are not absolutely explicitly labeled in Scripture, like like the Trinity, for example. Um, But there's no doubt that when you study the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, the Trinity is in the Bible. Like The themes of of the Trinity are in the Bible. God is triune, even though the Bible never says Trinity, there is no doubt that God is multiple persons in one. We know that to be true, and I believe the same as covenant theology. There are themes in Scripture, outlined in Scripture, asserted in the Scripture, that point to this idea that, that God has a has one way of dealing with his people from Genesis to Revelation. God doesn't change the way he deals with people. He doesn't change the mechanism by which people can come to him or have a relationship with him. Uh, there's only one clear way uh, that people come to faith in God or people can have friendship with God, and that is through a very specific covenant, uh, an agreement. Uh, and then as we look through the pages of Scripture, we see a variety of covenants. We see several different contracts and agreements that God has with people that he initiates with individual people, uh, but that but all of these, for the most part, are manifestations or subcontracts, so to speak, to a larger contract. These are all kind of mini covenants that point to a grander or larger covenant. That's that's the themes we see uh, throughout the scripture. And so God has God has one primary overarching covenant with all of humanity. And this started way back in the Garden of Eden. And this is the idea that human beings would be judged by our works. Like we all have a resume, so to speak. You know, metaphorically speaking, every human has sort of a, a lifetime report card, and that God is keeping track of all of our actions, good and bad, all of the things that we do, positive and negative, throughout the course of time, and that we are judged by that. Like God treats us in accordance with our works, in accordance with our behaviors and our actions. God looks at our resume. And he determines how he's going to treat us based on what the resume states. God judges us based on works. So we call this a covenant of works. God made an agreement with Adam way back in the Garden of Eden to judge him based on his works. And God made a promise. Listen, if you do what I tell you to do and you you keep the work that you're supposed to do, and that is to not eat of of this one particular tree if you you can eat of the fruit of all of the trees in the garden except this one and then adam i want you to take dominion over the earth i want you to be my representative here on planet earth to the rest of creation listen if you do what i've asked you to do i will continue to bless you and allow you to remain in the garden now adam breaks the covenant and then set from adam and all the way th- till today humans have been suffering the consequences of that. And so we call that the covenant of works. It's an agreement based on works, uh, based on our resume. And listen, people in general, humans in general, we are judged by the works of our resume. And let me tell you, this is very bad news because the Bible makes it clear all of us have sinned. All of us have a terrible failure resume. None of us are good. The Bible tells us in Romans, look through Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. This is, a, this is the discourse that the Apostle Paul lays out. That none of us are good, not even one. That all of us have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. This is very bad news to be judged on our personal resumes. However, there is one way not to be judged by your own works. 
and that is to be a believer in the one true God. If you are a genuine believer in the one true God, then you are credited with being righteous. Your resume looks really good, but it's not because it's your own works. It's because God actually replaces your resume with his own resume. We're still judged by works, but if we believe in God, we become a genuine believer in the one true God. Take God takes our resume, our track record of failure and sin, and he removes it, and he replaces it with a resume of righteousness and good works that he himself created because he himself is righteous and good. It's, it's his resume, but he's giving it to us. It's his report card, and he's giving it to us. In theology circles, we call this imputation, where God has imputed or transferred his resume of righteousness, his track record of success and innocence, and he puts that on us. The original contract that God had with humanity, the, the original covenant was that you're judged by your, your own works. The new contract, the new covenant that he gives is if you put your faith in God, then you're given a new resume. So you're still judged by works, but it's God's works that have been credited to you by which you are judged. Theologians call this the covenant of grace. Obviously, we call it the covenant of grace because it involves a gift from God. So we have the covenant of works, and now we have the covenant of grace. Side note, there's actually a third covenant uh, that theologians often talk about and write about called the covenant of redemption. Uh, this refers to a covenant between the members of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They, they have a covenant, uh, an agreement to, amongst themselves as to how to bring about redemption you know, uh, of humanity, how, how to go about you know, um, actually saving humans and bringing them back into the family of God. Um, but I'm going to cover that covenant in a separate episode by itself because there is uh, some divide amongst covenant theologians as to whether or not that is a real covenant and how do we actually uh, use that covenant in, in terms of um, you know, interpreting scripture. Just like amongst dispensationalist theologians, there's, there's drastic difference of opinions and there's some, some areas of divide. Um, in the same way, amongst covenant theologians, there are some areas of divide. So I'm going to cover that uh, that third covenant by itself in a separate episode. For, for this episode, I'm going to focus uh, primarily on uh, just the two overarching ones that you've already heard me mention, the covenant of works, the covenant of grace. The covenant of works is the idea that you are judged by your own works, your own resume, so to speak. And this is a scary proposition that we would stand before God being judged by what we have done. The covenant of grace is altogether different. That We are not judged by what we have done, but what God has done in us. That we are counted righteous by our faith in God. And we see this being manifested and extended throughout the pages of the Old Testament, even long before the cross. The first place we see this is in the book of Genesis with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had a contract with God. They had a covenant with God. That's where the covenant of works was established. But then they sin. They break that covenant. And so what does God do? God establishes a new covenant. He promises a Messiah. And what does he do in the garden as a foreshadowing of this covenant? He kills an animal to cover their nakedness, right? They didn't know they were naked before they sinned, but after they sinned, they were naked and they were ashamed. So God kills an animal and uses that skin to cover their shame. That's a foreshadowing of the cross, that God would kill Jesus to cover our shame. The covenant of grace on display. What an incredible foreshadowing of the ultimate covenant that would be established at the cross. 
The covenant of grace was also uh, manifested through Noah, Noah's covenant. The covenant that God had with Noah, the contract that God had with Noah was an extension or a manifestation of the grander covenant that was at work, the covenant of grace. You see, God establishes these individual covenants all throughout the Old Testament, but they are, they are extensions of a grander covenant that God has with his people. That is the covenant of grace. Then, then, then we see the Abrahamic covenant. Like, this is the covenant that God had with, with Abraham to make him a great nation. Eventually, God chooses this specific group of people from the lineage of Abraham, the Jewish people. And he says to them, listen, you're going to be my people. You will believe in me and I will be with you. And God sets up a covenant with the Jewish people, a, a contract with them. And again, this is an extension of the covenant of grace. But it's not individual with individual people. It's a corporate, uh, it's an overarching covenant with a large group of people, a particular group of people. It's not individual, it's with a nation. And the nation is treated as one unit. And the nation has a resume, but, but God does not judge them by their own resume, their own actions as a nation. God judges them and treats them in accordance with the resume that he has transferred to them. The, 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 the righteousness and holiness of God, he imputes to his people, and he treats them as if they were good. In and of themselves, they weren't good, but he treats them as if they were good. And there's incredible benefits of this covenant of this covenant. And all of the people of Israel, they enjoy the incredible covenant of being God's people. But even if an individual person wasn't a true believer in God, they still enjoyed the, the benefits of being the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel, simply by the fact that they were born into it. The people reaped the, the benefits of the corporate resume that had been imputed to the nation of Israel. And in order to keep this going, to keep this covenant established and, and, and continue going forth, God required certain sacrifices to be corporately made by, by the people of Israel. Now, fast forward to the New Testament, we get to Jesus who comes to planet Earth. He's God incarnate. He comes to planet Earth as a Jew to be the rescuer of humanity. He is the Messiah. And he makes the final sacrifice, which solidifies the covenant of grace, which means there's no more sacrifices ever needed ever again. And the covenant is renewed in grand fashion. This, this renewed covenant of grace is now not just exclusive to the Jewish people, but is made available to all types of people all over the world. And we refer to this as the new covenant. And in the new covenant, there's no more need for bloodshed, which is why we no longer require circumcision. Circumcision was the original sign of the covenant in the Old Testament. We no longer use that. We now use baptism as a symbol, which represents the fact that we've been washed washed of all of our sins. You see, any person who places their faith in Jesus will be credited with the resume of Jesus, the righteousness of God that was present in the man Jesus, the innocence and purity of God himself that was present in the man Jesus gets credited to any human being who puts their faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. If you believe in Jesus genuinely with all your heart, you become a part of the covenant of grace, no matter what your ethnic background is. The covenant of grace was fully established on planet Earth way before the cross through the Jewish people. That was the group that God dealt with as if they were his own people. He treated them like they were his own. He did not judge or treat other nations this way, right? 
The covenant then was made new in the New Testament, and it was expanded in the New Testament so that now we as believers, who we are not Jewish, I'm not Jewish, right? Most of you listening to this are not Jewish, but you can join the covenant of grace. It was originally established only for the Jews, but now it's been expanded. And anyone can join the covenant of grace. The way that the covenant you know, was, was expanded before was by birth. People were born into it. But now... Any person can can jump into the covenant of grace and be a part of it through faith in Christ. You see, there's no distinction in the New Testament between the New Testament church and the people of Israel. We're all one people. We're all simply people of faith. We're all the people of God. We're all the, the people of the covenant of grace. The New Testament word for the gathering of God's people or the assembly of God's people is the word ecclesia, which we translate to, the, to be the English word church. You see, in the Old Testament, that the covenant, the people of the covenant of grace were just Jews. But in the New Testament, they, the, the, the people of the covenant of grace are now made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Covenant theology views the covenants of Scripture as all being manifestations of either the covenant of works or the covenant of grace. All throughout the Bible, God is making agreements with individual people, saying, if you do this, I'll do this. God's saying, I'm going to do this. I want you to do this. Like, there's always these contracts and agreements and dialogue that God is doing. But every single one of them are some manifestation or extension of a grander covenant at work, either the covenant of works or the covenant of grace. And as we look through the pages of the Old Testament, we see all of these covenants that God has with different people. And all of these are foreshadowing of the cross. God has one overarching covenant of grace. God has one contract with humanity on how he plans to redeem them and save them. And that is through Jesus. And so all of the Old Testament foreshadows and points to the cross. It points to Jesus. And all of the New Testament reminds us of the cross, right? It looks back to what Jesus did at the cross. You see, Jesus is not just in the New Testament. Jesus is also in the pages of the Old Testament. But it is only through understanding covenant theology that we can actually ever see that. See, covenant theology is Christocentric, meaning it is Christ-centered. We are always looking for Jesus and what he did because ultimately the story of redemption is all about Jesus. Now, there are people out there who, who would attack covenant theology and the idea of it and would say it's, it's replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel. This couldn't be further from the truth. Like Covenant theology doesn't see a sharp distinction between Israel and the church because the, the people of Israel were always the people of God. It's just simply being expanded. It's the same group, just made bigger and available to everyone now. As the New Testament says that we are, we the Gentiles can be, we are, uh, we are grafted in to Israel. Like Israel constituted the people of God in the Old Testament. It was only Jewish people. But in the New Testament, anyone who believes in God, Jew or Gentile, is now a part of the people of God. We are all spiritual Israel, as Paul says in, in Romans. See, the church hasn't it hasn't replaced Israel. No, the new covenant of the New Testament has expanded Israel. Now, there are many Jews today, ethnic Jews, born on planet Earth today, who choose to reject Jesus as Messiah. And those people are not under the covenant of grace. You see, in the Old Testament, to be a part of the covenant, you had to be born into it. But even though those people today are being born Jewish, we are now under a new covenant, a better covenant, an expanded covenant. Originally, the people of God were the Jews, 
and everyone outside of that was judged by the covenant of works. But today, anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus is not a part of the expanded group of Israel. Even if you're born ethnically a part of Israel, you are not a part of the true Israel if you don't believe in Christ. And this is what Paul says in Romans. Like, not everyone who is a part of Israel, the nation, is actually a part of the true spiritual Israel. To be a part of the true spiritual Israel is to put all of your hope and faith in the one true God. And we know his name to be Jesus. You see, if you're born Jewish today ethnically speaking, and you don't put your faith in Christ, you're not under the covenant of grace. You are judged under the covenant of works. You see, all people who exercise the same faith that Abraham exercised back in Genesis, all of us become a part of the covenant people of God. We all join the group called Israel. We all are a part of the people of God. That's what Galatians chapter 3 is talking about. We are grafted in. Anyone who believes in Jesus, anyone who puts their faith in the one true God is judged under the covenant of grace. And any person who does not put their faith in God is still under the covenant of works. Okay, here's the bottom line. You've heard me talk a lot in this episode already. Let's boil it down to this. When you understand covenant theology, it impacts how you see the world and how you see scripture. When we understand covenant theology, we end up viewing the scripture through the lens of two overarching covenants. Whenever we are reading and interpreting the Bible, we are always seeing the Bible through the lens of these two covenants, the covenant of grace, the covenant of works. You know, some would say, well, doesn't that taint your view of the Bible? Doesn't that make you more biased or more likely to misunderstand? I'd say quite the opposite. Understanding covenant theology brings things into focus that you otherwise might miss. Understanding covenant theology has a dramatic impact on how you see and interpret the scriptures. There are some passages more than others where it really ends up having a pretty big impact, like the book of Revelation, uh, the book of Romans, uh, certain passages in the Gospels, uh, huge chunks of the Old Testament, in particular uh, anything that is prophetic, speaking of future events or messianic prophecies, things of that nature. So it does impact how you see the Bible uh, pretty dramatically. But most importantly, what covenant theology allows you to do is to see the Christocentric nature, the Christ-centeredness of the entire Bible. And it really makes more clear God's unfolding of his plan of redemption in a way that is beautiful. One other reminder before I let you go, and this is of extreme importance. Remember, all humans are born by default under the covenant of works. That's the covenant by which God is going to judge you. But if you want to be transferred to the covenant of grace, if you want God to judge you and treat you in light of the covenant of grace, well, then you need to be a part of the people of God. And how do you do that? Well, it's really simple. Put all of your hope and faith in Christ and in Christ alone. Believe in Jesus. You'll be a part of the covenant of grace. Hey, if you have questions about that or you don't know how to do that, you want to dialogue with someone, I would love to have a conversation with you. Shoot me an email. We can set up a time to chat by Skype or phone. I'd love to talk to you about putting all of your faith and hope in Christ and in Christ alone. Email me at heyortiz at theologyfortherestofus.com. That's H-E-Y-O-R-T-I-Z at theologyfortherestofus.com. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Hope this has been helpful. I look forward to our next episode when we dive into examining dispensationalism, the other framework by which we can view the scriptures. If you'd like to connect with me personally, the best place to do that is on Twitter. You can find me at Kenneth Ortiz. That's K-E-N-N-E-T-H. 
O-R-T-I-Z. Hey, reminder to everyone, check out our student ministry podcast at studentministrypodcast.com. I'm Kenny Ortiz, and this has been Theology for the Rest of Us.